Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Kruger, Managing Editor at the New Statesman in London. I'm Emily Tampkin, US Editor in Washington, D.C. I'm Ido Volk, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 2nd of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, we look at the new coronavirus variant and ensuing travel bans. We are deeply disappointed by the decision of several countries to prohibit travel from a number of Southern African countries, including our own, following the identification of the Omicron variant. What do we know and what do we not know about the Omicron variant so far? And how are governments responding to its discovery and sequencing? Then we turn to Ido's recent reporting in Calais in the wake of the worst disaster of the migration crisis in the English Channel, with migrants scared but undeterred in their quest to reach the UK. You said you had a friend who died this week. Yes. You still want to go to England, even though it's dangerous? Yes, because I will tell no choice what to do, my friend. But how will Europe and the UK respond? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, Alex and Ido, thank you for being with me today to talk about this very eventful week in world affairs. Let's get right into it. I think the the, the big story from the last week has to be this new variant. Alex, for any listener who has who has missed this, what is this new this new variant, and what do we know and not know about it so far? Well, the new variant has moved incredibly quickly. It was only discovered about a week ago or identified about a week ago, and it seems to have come from Southern Africa. And from there, it's spread quite rapidly. And even the scientists don't know a huge amount about it yet. It appears to be more transmissible than the other variants. But what we don't know yet is whether it would evade vaccines and how severe any infection would be. That said, Countries are taking fewer chances than they have done with previous variants. So they're clamping down hard with travel restrictions, mask mandates in some places, corona passes, vaccine passports in others, all in an attempt to contain this new variant, particularly as the Christmas holidays approach and for 
a lot of people, this is all too reminiscent of last year when the alpha variant emerged and at very short notice, much of the world went into lockdown in December. We're still waiting to find out exactly what the Omicron variant will do. But this time, there's much more of a precautionary principle in action. One of the things that happened immediately or almost immediately after the discovery of this variant was that various countries put up travel bans and specifically travel bans on travel from South Africa, where, where the new variant it did not originate there, but it was, or we don't know where it originated, but it was, it was discovered and identified there. It seems to me like at this point in the pandemic, this is just not an effective, the variant was already in Europe at that point. And also it just seems like you're punishing the country that, that discovered it. You know, I know you wrote about this earlier this week. So what do you think? I don't think you can really say that it's ineffective. It is true that it's not going to keep Omicron or really any variant out of any country. We've seen that since the beginning of the pandemic. Even the countries that have incredibly tough border policies, quarantining people for two or three weeks and only allowing entry to citizens and so on, no country has managed to keep the, the virus out. Even the countries which which did it for a very long time were brought to their knees by the Delta variant. So it's not going to work. What travel bans do do, according to the people I've spoken to, is they buy you a little bit of time um, mm. with new variants. So obviously the, the new variant we think emerged perhaps somewhere in Africa, maybe not in Southern Africa, although that was the first place to sequence it because it has very high rates of HIV, has a very good virus sequencing program. And so they were able to figure out that they had a new variant. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it emerged in South Africa or in the countries around South Africa, which have seen travel bans imposed on them. But the variant emerged uh, probably in somewhere in Africa. That's, mm -hmm. that's what we think. Although it's it's in other places, it's being seeded in, you know, in Europe at this point, um, in Israel and Hong Kong and lots of other places too. Imposing travel bans prevents the seeding of further sort of instances of the virus which people can spread in, in particular places. That doesn't mean that Omicron won't spread at all. It does mean that you buy yourself a, a bit of time to figure out what to do before Omicron becomes the predominant variant. And, and that's the really important thing, because at this point, there is a lot of speculation about the properties that Omicron does or does not possess. Where is it more transmissible? Is it resistant to vaccines? Does it cause more severe or less severe disease? We don't know. We don't know the answer to any of that. We have informed speculation, or and a lot of less informed speculation. <laughs> we simply don't know. And it's going to take at least a couple of weeks, maybe two, maybe three, maybe a bit longer, until we have a decent preliminary uh, idea of the properties of Omicron and where the, this new variant might lead the pandemic from here on out. But until then, this gives you a bit of time to react, to hopefully get a bit more information and then figure out what your strategy against this, uh, this, this variant should be. I saw some headline that was like, probably not that bad for vaccinated people, but they should still take care. We don't know. It's like, why did you write this piece? But that was not a new statesman piece. So the other part of this is that you know, we think that this emerged in Africa where there are just fewer vaccines and less access to vaccines than, say, the United States. So there has been a lot of discussion about vaccine inequality. Alex, what are your thoughts? Well, there is a problem with vaccine inequity. You have the COVAX scheme, which was set up to share vaccines purchased by the rich world, give them to developing countries, with the idea that, you know, 
as long as you have vaccine hoarding, as long as you have vaccine inequity, the pandemic will not end. And I don't think that's what anyone wants, frankly. But it's not just about the number of vaccines delivered to developing countries. It's also what you do when they get there, how you get them out to people. So the distribution and the the storage, some of them have to be kept at very cold temperatures. So how do you do that? In a lot of places, that, that's quite a challenge. And also the predictability of the delivery, because if vaccines are arriving, you know, if you get six million doses into a country with two weeks before they expire, it's pretty difficult to organize that kind of distribution and vaccination program at short notice. So yes, vaccine inequity, but there are other factors at play as well. Obviously, this new variant and the continuing ongoing pandemic um, are stories that we will continue to follow. Let's turn now to our next topic of discussion. Ido, you were recently on a reporting trip in Calais. There is an ongoing migrant crisis there. Can you can you tell us a bit about what's going on and what you saw? Yeah, so uh, I was in Calais in the wake of the the worst loss of life in the English Channel since the migration crisis between France and the UK. Uh, really escalated, or, or the small boats crisis, as it's become known in the past few years. So at least 27 people uh, are believed to have lost their life last week in the channel. It's probably a bit more. Uh, only 27 bodies have been recovered, but there might be a few more. And so I went there to speak to migrants, to speak to locals, officials, about this intractable crisis and uh, the effect that this tragedy has, has had on, on this area and on these people, both the migrant population and on the local area in northern France. In your reporting and discussion with the migrants themselves, what stuck out? Pretty much everyone I spoke to was still wanting to get to England. Mm. Um, it's not really a surprise because everyone who is already in northern France, who's made their way you know, from Greece or from Belarus or from Turkey or Italy or whatever, everyone who's made their way to northern France through several European countries to 30 kilometres away from England wants to get to England, although that's a very small proportion of the number of refugees who arrive in the EU or in Europe every year. The people who arrive in northern France want to get to England. So many of them were shocked uh, by, by the news. They were really scared. But they still, a lot of them have this idea of England as some kind of El Dorado where the streets are paved with gold and they're going to, they'll get there and they'll get work and uh, their children will be able to go to school and they'll have a decent life because many of them have come from pretty miserable conditions. You know, I spoke to people from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Eritrea, Syria, Iraq, and they think that their life is going to be much better when they get to England. Others have personal connections, either they have met someone from England who was kind to them, or they have family in England, that's quite common, or they're just going for the language because they speak a bit of English and they don't speak French or German, so they'd rather go to England. But none of them were put off by this tragedy. They all know how dangerous it is. They're, they're not stupid. They all understand the risks, but they still want to go. And I was, I was just desperately trying to understand what could possibly be so special about the UK that would justify putting your life in danger in a tiny little rickety boat that you might drown in. I spoke to a guy from Eritrea who said he lost a friend who he had traveled through Greece with in, in the disaster, and he still wanted to get to England. 
Why did you come to Europe? Europe because the religion problem, my country religion problem. I am Protestant. Everything problem. That's why no freedom. That's why we live in because my father he's died. He's killing my government. Killing him. You said you had a friend who died this week. Can you talk about her? Yes, she also same uh, religion problem. You know, I know it for Greece. Together coming Milano. After coming, uh, they by car try Belgium. After uh, next not successful, she have money. After the boat coming, is two thousand uh, euro give him by Dalala. You know, after she try, after problem she die. Mom. Uh, have you told her family? Uh, only mother have. No, I'm not telling him because how to tell him? You still want to go to England, even though it's dangerous. Yes, because I will try. No choice. What to do, my friend? I will try. Yeah, your your point about once you've made it all that way and you're 30 kilometers from England, you you're going to try to get to England is a poignant, if if harrowing one. So that's what the migrants themselves said. What about the population in Calais? So Calais got a weird place. <laughs> at the moment it's a small french city and they've got i don't they've got a little theater and they've got a couple of churches and they've got a few shopping streets and you know a few restaurants and some cafes or whatever it's a normal small french city and then you you just have this enormous number of migrants who are i think the jungle was dismantled so the big migrant camp that was on the outskirts of the city was was dismantled by police so that's not there anymore but nonetheless there are people everywhere just walking around in the street or in in the train station, um, sleeping rough, whatever. And it's it's really quite a sort of weird atmosphere because you've got the small town French, you know, atmosphere with um, the little brasseries and uh, the cafes and the old grandmas with their shopping trolleys. And you've also got loads and loads and loads of uh, migrants. And there's not that much outright hostility. Like a lot of locals are actually pretty sympathetic to the migrants because they see the the really dire conditions that people mm-hmm. are living under and they they sympathize with them. I think it's pretty human to sympathize with people when they're there and you see them with your own eyes rather than those kind of abstract idea um, through a screen. I mean, we, we hope that people have that, that reaction, right? That faced with the sort of desperation that it, it awakens some humanity. Yeah, I mean, there, there were definitely, there were some people who were hostile. Mm-hmm. There was one guy I spoke to who started going on about uh, you know, these people are cowards, they're leaving their countries and they could, they're all young men, they could fight and instead they're coming here because they want our benefits. But most people are pretty sympathetic. What was the attitude towards the UK, to towards the British government? Were they frustrated with, with the, the response from the other side of the channel? So they don't like the UK, but they don't like the UK not really because of the migrants. They don't think the migrant problem is the UK's fault, but they do dislike the UK because of the fishing licenses, because it's a area where fishing is a big part of the economy and um, it's a big part of the culture too. And obviously uh, there is a post-Brexit dispute between the French and British governments over fishing licenses and the right to fish in British waters, which a lot of these fishermen have traditionally relied on. So there's a lot of anger at the UK for that, but not for the migrants, because there's just a sense that it's no one's fault, really. It's not France's fault. It's not the UK's fault. All these people, I mean, they're pretty they're pretty lucid. They understand that if they're coming from Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever, like they're not coming for the hell of it. They're coming because life, where they've come from, is 
pretty awful and they want a better life. And I think most people in, in the area understand that. You've seen the, the migrant crisis on both ends of the EU's borders. How did the situations compare? Were the stories you heard from the migrants comparable? And what was the reaction from the people on the eastern border of, of the EU between Belarus and Poland? As a general rule, conditions at the border with Belarus were a lot a lot harsher um, because of obviously the fact that they were coming from Belarus, which is an authoritarian regime where they were essentially used as pawns by the Belarusian side and then the very harsh conditions imposed by Poland, which we've spoken about in a previous episode of this podcast, but including, for example, the use of pushbacks to Belarus and um, a restriction zone where NGOs were banned from working close to the border and so on, which meant that in general, when migrants had come through that restricted zone, the ones that had managed to get through, they were generally in a pretty bad way and pretty traumatized and they'd been through a lot. Um, Obviously, France is a relatively more humane country. Obviously, there there are a lot of abuses by police and against migrants in the Calais area in northern France. But as a as a rule, conditions are are a bit better. So, for example, NGOs can help people. There are beatings by police. Police do break up camps and sort of slide their knives through tents and force people out and take their sleeping bags and things like that. But um, but I think as a general rule, conditions are are better. But then also you don't have the the really miserable conditions of the crossing itself that migrants have in northern France. You don't have that in Poland and and Belarus. You don't have that kind of, you don't have that really visceral challenge and difficult uh, objective to to kind of surmount. The thing about the boats is there's just a lot that has to go right for you to get from northern France to England, to, to Dover or to Kent or whatever. The weather has to be good. You have to have found a smuggler you have to have paid them there have to be enough people the people on your boat have to actually go because a lot of them get cold feet understandably at the moment you have to wait days and days for one clear day a day when the weather is is good enough to cross and so a lot of things have to go right for you to actually get on the boat so a lot of people just kind of spend a lot of time waiting around basically it sort of reminds me of reports that came out of out of southern italy and specifically sicily right where you had the local population sort of trying to help people who were coming in, even if they didn't want them to stay there indefinitely. And then you had the grander politics of of Italy, which in that case imposed fines for helping refugees. Ido, before we move on, what is the main thing that you took away from your reporting trip and that you would encourage others to reflect on? I think that the main thing I would say is that there's a desperation among these people for safe routes to the UK. So basically, the, the way UK law is currently formulated is... Someone who wants to ask for asylum in the UK has to be, in general, if they're not invited to apply for asylum, for example, from a, a refugee camp or something like that, they have to be physically present on UK soil to ask for asylum. But there are no legal routes to get to the UK because of a 2003 agreement between France and the UK, which places the British border in northern France. So basically, it's not as if you can kind of get on a ferry and easily go to England and then apply for asylum when you arrive. You just can't do that. So because of that, these people who want to apply for asylum are forced to take very dangerous routes to get to the UK. If it pays off, if they get there, they are allowed to apply for asylum and uh, and their, their claims will be will be reviewed, but only if they manage to get there. For example, I spoke to a Syrian whose boat had capsized on the same day as the the boat carrying those 27 people 
capsized. And he was rescued. He said he thought he was going to die, but he was rescued. He asked me whether there was a method to apply for asylum other than by the sea. Mm. And what British policy is basically doing is encouraging people to take the most dangerous routes possible because there are there are no other options. And people like this are desperate for safe routes, whether that be, for example, applying for asylum in the UK from France mm. or um, you know, some way to cross that isn't via these small boats. And there is there is nothing. Um and I think that's something that really needs to needs to change. We will put Ido's dispatch from Calais in the show notes for this episode, and I encourage you all to read it. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. With that... It is now time for a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Not perfectly synchronized this week, but that is okay. Um, our question this week comes to us from Twitter, and it is, is Zamor reaching the runoff remotely realistic, or is he likely to split the far-right vote and lead to a more moderate candidate in the runoff against Macron? So this is referring to Zamor, the French far-right journalist who is now running for president. Ido, you have been following this, so we will we will turn to you. Yeah, so I suppose, is it remotely realistic? Yes. Uh, he, in many polls, now comes second to Macron. So the top two candidates in the first round go to the second round. So is it realistic? Uh, yes. Is it likely to split the far-right vote? Also, yes. I mean, as Zemmour was rising in the polls, he's now he's now plateaued and he's going down a bit. Um, as he was rising in the polls this summer, we saw a pretty sort of mechanical, mechanical effect where as Zemmour would rise, Le Pen would fall which indicates that there is a lot of uh, porousness between their two electorates. They're not exactly the same electorates, they're not exactly the same voters, but there's a lot of porousness between them, which makes sense because many of Zimor's ideas are just more extreme versions of Le Pen's. And arguably he comes from the same sort of ideological lineage as her party and as her, even though they're quite different candidates and they've got quite different ideologies. But nonetheless, 
in most polls at the moment, Zemmour is second or third and Le Pen is second or third. So it indicates a far right, which is very, very strong. And um, it seems to be at the moment quite unlikely that Le Pen and Zemmour will uh, agree on a joint list, uh, sort Mm. of agree to unite to maximise the chances of a far right candidate doing well, getting to the second round. So it does look like the far right is going to continue to be to be split up until the election at at the moment, and I I think that speaks to this kind of identity crisis that the far right is having, because many of their ideas are shared, even though Zimur has more extreme versions of them. But Zimur is quite a. If Le Pen spent a decade since she became leader fashioning herself as a stateswoman and as a respectable part of politics as um someone someone competent she spent a very long time fashioning herself as as a kind of respectable part of the political spectrum and by contrast Zimur revels in in destroying norms in disregarding decorum in just smashing up uh, the kind of accepted bounds of politics and whoever far-right voters end up going for will show where the mood currently is is it for someone who has pretty radical ideas but nonetheless is trying to fashion herself as a kind of respectable part of the political spectrum which is lupin or is it going to be someone who just is almost a kind of revolutionary is um is is a completely new part of the political spectrum and, and relishes in just smashing up norms, which is Zimur. We don't yet know. I guess there are two ways of looking at it. You can say, oh, well, the far right is divided, which is good for those who don't want to see a far right president. Or alternatively, you could say, but there is a, a fair amount of support for the far right in, in France as elsewhere. He sounds a bit like a French Donald Trump. I think the operative part of that is French, right? If you actually listen to his speeches, they are peppered with these kind of references to like obscure medieval history that (laughs) I have no idea what he's talking about. I'm pretty sure that most people who are listening to him have no idea what he's talking about. Um, He's, you know, he's referring some like to like some 16th century treaty between France and England and like Joan of Arc and like, you know, some writer from the 18th century. No one knows what he's talking about. I mean, I certainly don't, and maybe I'm uh, I'm outing myself as uh, as a as a moron, which is entirely possible. Uh, but I think he he lends himself to French people's kind of perceptions of their country and of what their politics should be quite well, because he has this veneer of uh, intellectualism, of respectability, of of being cultured, which obviously makes sense because he was a polemicist, he was a writer, he's written books, he's by all accounts pretty well read. So I think, you know, French people, I guess, maybe they're in the mood for this kind of populism. It's a very different kind of populism to, to, for example, Donald Trump's, even though at least in form, perhaps not on the substance. But I think it kind of speaks to what French people think of themselves and the kind of politics that they want for themselves and the the kind of country that they think they are. So a reactionary, but one who can quote uh, medieval history. And I guess I would just say to our to our Twitter questioner, um, I don't want to compare everything to the United States and to Trump, but there's just so much about this particular candidate and the way that he says things and the way that the media covers him that um, that reminds me of, of that. So I would just caution against writing him off completely. 
Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk, or you can just tweet at us. That's all we have time for today. You can read our international team's reporting at newstatesman.com. And join us on Monday for an interview with Turkish journalist Ece Temelkuran. And subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world review. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave us a review and tell your friends. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.